Let's get going. Good to see you. Thanks for joining us tonight. Apologetics, the Gospels, and the reliability of Scripture. Um, So this evening, I'm going to lay out five questions I hope to answer. Um, I'm going to spend more time, I think, on the second one than the rest of them. Um, But I want to answer why we need to use the Bible in apologetics, why we believe the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative, why we believe what's in the Protestant Bible is all that should be in the Bible. Why don't we add some extra books? Uh, why do we believe that what's in the Bible today is an accurate representation of what was originally written? And then a how. How should we engage with people that are skeptical about parts or all of the Bible? So that's what we're going to try to cover. Um, if you've got other things, I'll try to save some time for questions towards the end. Um, but you're also welcome to kind of raise your hand and... We'll follow uh, through on some questions as we go. So, but that's why. I want to open with prayer, and then let's get in. God, thank you that you reveal yourself through the pages of Scripture in a way that we see your redemption. And God, the way that we can know truth uh, substantively, uh, that we can know it accurately. And God, would you help us to treasure our word, your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So on most of these, I may have ended up on all five of them, but I want to talk about some biblical reasons. I'm going to give you some, but I'm going to have you try to think first. So um, why do we need to use the Bible in apologetics? Can anybody think of, maybe you can give chapter and verse, maybe you can only quote part of the verse um, and don't know the reference, but are there any scriptures or scriptural concepts that come to mind for why we should use the Bible in apologetics? Because not everyone's going to agree that the Bible's true, but why should we use the Bible for the task of apologetics? do we have? Okay. Well, we have, uh, to go back to previous times, we've got natural law and natural theology. Um, we've got the clues about God from morality. Um, there's some biblical scriptures that will instruct us about things that can be known about God, not from the pages of scripture. Spirit is what actually does saving, then the Word of God is the thing that would key the holy, the moving of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Using logic uh, uh, to invoke the Spirit, you know, so we know God's Word is powerful, and it, because it, it's the Word, and you have the, you know, several verses in there about it being sharper than a two-edged right. sword, and all, all, all that stuff, but the fact of it is you're putting word of God, which is comes from somebody not human, and, and it has power in its own, and, and we know that the Holy Spirit is what's got to draw. Okay. The Holy the Spirit draws people unto the Lord, convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We talked about that last week. Um, intangible you know, personal side that you can't necessarily see and prove, you know, this would be something that you can actually physically reference. It's here. You can see and go through okay. it. Um, and then you trust the Holy Spirit to do the, the other work. 
And so much of what's in it has already happened or we see it happening. Right. It's, so, go ahead. So for apologetics, if you're trying to be persuasive, you're not going to be able to have a solid argument if you don't even know the foundation of what you're trying to discuss. Right. Okay. And didn't they find that the, the Dead Sea Scrolls supported? Hmm. Absolutely. And we'll talk about some, some evidences that make us believe. This is that third question or fourth question. Why we believe that what's in the Bible today is an accurate representation of what was originally written. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Okay. Go ahead. I thought of 2 Timothy 3.16. Okay. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction for training in righteousness. Mm-hmm. So obviously you need to believe the Bible to believe that that's true, but right. it shows why okay. you need it because it's good for us. Okay. So those are all benefits of the Bible. Why is the Bible necessary? I'm not going to say the entirety reading of the Bible necessary, but what about the Bible is necessary for teaching of salvation? Let's, I'm trying to contrast this with natural theology, natural law, general revelation first. It's a standard out in clearly. Okay. Versus natural, it's not very clear. Right. It's natural is not necessarily clear. Something, but right. it doesn't tell you what the something is. Okay. And in natural theology or natural law, we general revelation tells us something about God. And Romans 2 talks about the role of the conscious in all people, that we are condemned according to violation of the limited corrections in the conscience. We can be condemned according to that. But there's something that's necessary that Scripture informs us of that is not in the conscious and that is not in creation. And what is that? Because the conscious can tell us right from wrong, not 100% accuracy, but reasonable accuracy. Creation itself testifies to God. But what does creation and conscience not teach us as unto salvation? The gospel. The gospel. Salvation. Okay. So Acts 4.12 teaches us that there is salvation in no other name but in Christ, the nature of Christ. Creation does not teach us of redemption. Conscience does not point to how we might be saved. Instead, it shows us the means by which we are condemned as Romans 1, 18 and following, we could say, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For it can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So we are condemned for our rejection of God and what can be known about him through creation. Romans 2 walks through how we are condemned for our violation of conscience as well. We can see things by which in conscience and creation we are condemned, but our salvation is described in the gospel requiring special revelation. Okay? So why do we need to use the Bible in apologetics? Well, we can get to condemnation apart from it, but we cannot get to salvation apart from it and what it teaches us. So we want to point to the Bible 
and the record of Christ's work on our behalf as found in the Bible in the task of apologetics because our goal is to give an answer for the hope that is in us. If all we want to do was to note man's condemnation, we might not have to go too far on the basis of what those two other passages tell us. They do inform us. They make it explicitly clear. But the hope is found in the special revelation and the work of Christ in the gospel. So, yes, the, the, the songs are there, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. And even Jesus Loves Me has it right on this one. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Not creation tells me so. Not conscious tells me so. Not the internet tells me so. Not anybody else tells me that God is love, love is love, all of this other stuff. It actually defines what God means by love. And the Bible describes that and how it works out in the person of Christ. So we need to use the Bible and apologetics to point to redemption. Okay. Also, the Bible in itself is a claim for truth and a rejection or a rebuttal of everything being relative. All right, so in a relativistic world, truth for you, like, you know, my, my wife, you really want to get her riled up right now, like get her stuck on this phrase that seems to be going around that I'm like talking about my truth. <laughs> yep, some of you already eye roll, audible groan. I'm just speaking my truth. What do you mean here? Okay, you mean your flawed perspective or do you mean like truth, truth? Because there's no such thing as my truth. We don't have a copyright on truth. Um, it's either true or it's not true. Right? You can be your perspective, um, but all right, the Bible is a truth assertion to a relativistic culture, and it confronts that relativism. Okay? So, more time here on this one. Why? Give me some scriptures or scriptural reasons that we would believe that the Bible is trustworthy and or authoritative. You just gave one. Yep, I heard one earlier. At least one earlier. Restate it. It claims to be. Okay, it claims to be. Anywhere in particular you're thinking about in regard to that? Uh, I mean, Second Timothy, yep. right? Like if it's God's word, it's authoritative. Okay. Um, and uh, I would just say a consistent witness throughout the Old Testament of the word of God, the prophets of God, Man shall not live by bread alone. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, even even in the way that um, Israel built this society around uh, right. the reading of God's word. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So it has been the clear and consistent belief of God's people for the better part of three millennia that God's word is trustworthy and authoritative. deviation from that is a new thing. Okay. Second Timothy three, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That concept that, that it is breathed out from God. So the Christian understanding of God is that God is trustworthy. So scripture derives its trustworthiness from its source. Also its authority from its source. Okay, other passages that come to mind. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver, silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Okay. So. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, scripture has a lot to say about scripture. Right. All of Psalm 119. All right. Somebody else. What else comes to mind? What he describes, right, in Genesis. Okay. He describes creating the earth and, and how he created it and what, what it had. It describes what we have on earth. We have stars and we have this moon, all the light and lights and all those different things that are described there. So, um, and they, they exist. Mm-hmm. The, that, the picture of the Bible seems to be accurate. Good. Any other scriptures that would be used that come to mind for you that suggest that scripture is trustworthy and authoritative? Uh, two. Um, let's see. One or two? Uh, one sixteen. One one sixteen and okay. following. Yep, yeah. that's what I had to. Have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I didn't know how much of that to read, but yeah. uh, let's see. We don't follow cleverly devised myths. We are with them on the holy mountain, and we have received the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to as the light shining in the darkness. Uh, knowing this, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced of the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yep. So th- this is a key one for me. Second Timothy 3 gets cited quickly because it is one verse, um, which is a lot easier to memorize, and we build that one in really quick into our memory, which we should. Um, but I think that this Second Peter passage is really valuable to push back, that the Bible does not claim to be myth. It claims to be truth. Um, and not personal and private, not my truth, but not a matter of personal stuff, but men moved by God spoke. Carried along by the Holy Spirit. Any other passages that come to mind? I've got one we're going to go to in a minute. Okay. Yep. Law of the Lord, Lord is perfect, testament of the Lord is sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. Following on the back half of the beginning of Psalm 19 is that the heavens declare the glory of God. The back half of that is special revelation. So you've got general revelation and special revelation in Psalm 19. I want to go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jot or tittle will pass away. Correct. Yeah. I want to go here and... I'm going to read largely for a few minutes um, some stuff that I've put together previously from this passage um, because I want to read the passage first and then I want to, to walk through what I think this passage is teaching us. Jesus is speaking, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He said, don't think that I've come to abolish or put away the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not any oda or dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The teachings seeming to point to the trustworthiness and the effectiveness of God's word. Whoever relaxes one of these least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Christ seems here to be teaching that the law is 
perfect, that it is good, that it is an accurate thing. When he says law and prophets, he's speaking of the Old Testament. Jesus believes that the Old Testament is trustworthy and authoritative. And my phrase to this one is, I do not have the arrogance or the ignorance to argue with him about it. Jesus believed that the Bible was trustworthy. He believed it was authoritative as well. So because Jesus believed it, we either believe as Jesus did or we believe that Jesus was deceived. Um, And I think that's a missing factor in a lot of the discussion about the pages of Scripture and whether they are trustworthy and authoritative is that Jesus believes that it is. So for the Christian with the really informed concept, we're going to totally give them air quotes for a minute, that the Bible, that portions of the Bible are accurate and others are not, they're seemingly more intelligent than Jesus. Most of them would not actually tell you that they think they are smarter than Jesus or that they think that Jesus got it wrong. So, which is why I think it's important because remember, Christianity is about Jesus. Now, is it absolutely valuable and vital to the health of churches, to people to understand that the Bible, I'm going to use the word, is inerrant without error, that it is infallible, what it says will be accomplished, that it is authoritative? Absolutely. But their problem is not ultimately with the Bible if they deny that. It's ultimately with Jesus. The same means by which they can be saved is the one that believes that the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative. So point people back to Jesus. He is the means by which they are saved. Not There are lost people that believe in the inerrancy of the word. There are not lost people that have trusted Christ as Savior. So the goal, the goal of apologetics is that people give glory to God by finding the answer for the hope that we have. Then we want to point them back to Jesus not just the Bible, and to get them to say that Jesus, when we come down to the discussion on the Bible, Jesus believes that the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative. So if he believed it, then maybe I should too. Now, there's some other evidence, and we can talk through that, but I think that this is a Christology issue, not just a Bibliology issue, when it comes to whether or not the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative. Because either Jesus got it wrong, or he didn't. And when Jesus suggests that none of the Bible is wrong, that none of it's going to pass away, I'm not willing to say Jesus got it wrong. Now, that's a slight, maybe oversimplification, but I think it's a valuable, rational way to turn people, well, what do you believe about Jesus? Because Jesus seems to believe the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative, so do you think he got it wrong? Well, Jesus didn't get it wrong. Okay, well then, now let's talk about the Bible then. I want to walk through some more. Um, Next week, we'll talk more about the resurrection. Um, The biggest reason to not believe, to believe that the Bible doesn't have errors to me is not the manuscript evidence. It's not the abundance of evidence we have. It's not the archaeological evidence that is never denied, but is always, if anything, confirmed what is in the Bible. It's not the internal consistency, the external consistency. For me, the greatest reason to believe the Bible is true is because Jesus believed it was true. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. This is a way of thinking of the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. 
He goes on to say, no part will be set aside, not the smallest punctuation mark or the smallest distinguishing mark that makes one letter a letter and not a different one. Okay, Jesus believed the Bible was without error in what it taught and that the purposes of God revealed in it would come absolutely true. Now, that doesn't mean that the people in his day or our day or any day have correctly understood what the Bible taught. Jesus makes this claim in the Sermon on the Mount. And then right after this, he says, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. And then he goes on to show how they had misunderstood so much of what the Bible said. So when we claim that Jesus believed that the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative, when evangelical Christians, conservative Christians, claim that the Bible is inerrant and infallible, we do not mean our interpretation is without error. Jesus, after making a claim for inerrancy and infallibility, showed them the errors of their interpretation in their day. And there is a high likelihood that he would hold me accountable for getting something wrong in my interpretation as well. I just don't know what it is or I wouldn't believe it. Right? So we need to distinguish that the word is inerrant and infallible, but our interpretation of it is not guaranteed to be such. There is a difference in those. Okay? Like, for example, the people, Christians for a long time, some Christians were radically wrong on the issue of human slavery. Okay, they'd use the Bible to support it instead of seeing the foundations of the Bible that go against it. Okay, now Jesus didn't believe only parts of the Old Testament were true. Okay, there's a, when you look through the ways that he interacted with people, Jonah and other things, like Jesus gives this robust view of much of the characters and the events of the Old Testament, and he talks about them as if they really happened, not just they taught a point. Jesus seems to believe that the Old Testament events, for the most part, occurred, of the ones that he references, and that they also accurately convey God. The question when you wrestle with the way that Jesus dealt with the Old Testament is not whether or not you believe the Bible is true, but whether or not you believe Jesus can be trusted on the trustworthiness of Scripture. I think it's a Jesus issue. Um, okay. Now, when I say the Bible is trustworthy, I mean it's worth trusting. That means we need to teach it and understand it to the extent of the way the words are used by authors. Okay. Inerrancy does not mean that when the Bible says God is a rock, he's literally a rock. Okay, poetic language is poetic language, right? And all parts of the Bible are trustworthy, even though there are complicated and weird parts, okay? Um, the term that is often used here and that I'm okay with using is inerrancy, um, and it means the Bible is without error, right? The Old Testament's real and abiding trustworthiness and authoritativeness must be understood because it points to God who reveals himself in it. And nothing passing away means nothing passing away. Jesus is fulfilling the law through his perfect righteousness. And the way that we see the Bible pointing to Christ is key. Okay, in Luke 24, 27, Jesus would later interpret or unpack the things in the Bible concerning himself to the disciples. Okay. So those that believe the Bible is without error, they don't, there's this accusation thrown against some Christians that believe the Bible was without error. 
Um, and this even actually occurred in some of the debate between the 1963 version of the Baptist Faith and Message and the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message. Those from more of a moderate bent uh, accused those of believing that were believing in inerrancy and standing strong on it of bibliolatry, worshiping the Bible rather than Christ um, because of the continued insistence on the fact that the Bible in and of itself is trustworthy, accurate revelation of God, his character, Christ, his actions. Um, and there's some nuanced discussion between theologians in there, but sometimes people from the more moderate camp will say, well, you believe the Bible's an error, you must worship the Bible. No, I worship Jesus as revealed in the pages of the Bible. Um, because Jesus himself says in the pages of the Bible that the whole Bible's about him. I don't worship the Bible, I worship Jesus took these things concerning himself, the law and the prophets, and taught them to them. All right. We already hit it, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 1 Peter chapter 2. We got our Bible as men moved by God, spoke on God's behalf to an original audience and to people across time. The Bible comes from God, according to it, and therefore it bears his character, that of truth and authority because it's who it comes from. Because the Bible, because God is trustworthy, the Bible is trustworthy. Because the God is authoritative, then also the Bible is authoritative when it speaks on behalf of God. And Jesus warns them about ignoring and disregarding the truthfulness and authoritative nature of the Bible on, in verse 19 when he says, don't relax the commandments but instead do and teach. Now, in addition to the fact, I don't know that we would need to go any further than Jesus, but I'll give you some more and some stuff that's classically thrown in here. This is a bonus. This this is like, you know, putting icing on top of the cake. The cake itself was actually the star, but here's a little bit of icing on it. There's internal and external consistency. There's external evidence that suggests that everything in the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative, or at least trustworthy. There's agreement with secular documents, okay? I'm just going to rattle off a bunch of stuff for you for the next couple of minutes, okay? Over the last 100 years or so, a little more than that, archaeological discoveries vindicate again and again the veracity, the reliability of Scripture. They don't conflict, or where they do appear to conflict, later stuff finds out that it doesn't actually conflict. Doesn't always, we don't have archaeological evidence for everything in the pages of the Bible, because we haven't found everything yet, and some stuff's just disappeared. But the archaeological evidence overwhelmingly supports it. Never comes back and says, oh no, this is impossible. It's like, if it does anything, it supports. Archaeology doesn't prove that Scripture's inspired, but there's no discovery that's disproved it. All right, one of the things about the Bible is... That, that lends itself to being a historically accurate picture. And we'll talk a little bit more about this next week on the resurrection, but all, is the way in which characters that are key leaders are presented with big flaws. Like if I was going to write a biography about myself that wasn't true, I would not reveal to you my flaws. Okay? Like I would not, if I was going to be the first pope I would not include my denial of Jesus in there if I was making something up. Like Peter's flaws being recorded in the pages of Scripture almost certainly happened because that's not the type of stuff you make up for a religious leader. You want your religious leaders to look good, not bad. And that's bad. 
like James and John like wanting to call down thunder and lightning and like zap people. I mean, that's not good. Like that's not the stuff you make up about yourself if you want to be a religious leader in this new religion uh, that way that shaped the way Christianity is. There's a very unflattering picture of the disciples and their denial of the of the resurrected Christ, their abandonment of him, all sorts of other things. It's like, hey, if you're going to make up something, this is not the type of stuff you make up. So it's probably not made up. Um, several writers give their lives for the message. There, there's no disagreement from the eyewitnesses. We'll talk more about this next week. And the New Testament manuscripts are earlier and greater than any other ancient text. We do not have the original letter from Paul to Rome that he wrote with a pen or, or a pen, somebody penning it for him. We don't have that. We haven't found his letter to the Thessalonian church. We found early, early copies of those letters that we refer to as manuscripts, but we haven't found the original, okay? One, there's only one original. Things like that tend to disappear over time. We're talking about something 2,000 years old. Like, we just don't have the original. What we have is thousands upon thousands, and we'll come up to the manuscript evidence in a minute, of numbers of copies of pieces, portions, etc., of so much of the Bible. And some of them can be reliably dated to a very close time period between when that letter was written and when the copy exists. So if today we were to find the, the closest copy of Pilate, Pontius Pilate's journal between him and his wife, and the closest copy to that can be dated 1950 years after it was written, there's not really a reliable way to know that that was actually what he originally wrote with the closest copy to it's 1,900 years later. But when it comes to portions of Scripture and manuscripts, we have early stuff, particularly in comparison to other ancient texts. Homer's stuff, written in 900 B.C., earliest copy, 500 years later. All right, the number of copies, about 643. The New Testament was written in 40 to 80 D, 40 to 100 AD, somewhere in there. The earliest copy is possibly as early as 125 AD, just you know, 25 years later than portions. Number of copies, 24,000 plus. Okay, 600 on, like, by one count on the Homer stuff, 24,000 with biblical evidence. And I'll give you some more of that. I think, I think I'll give you some more of that later, or at least point you to a link on it. Okay, not only that, the Bible itself internally doesn't contradict itself. Now, we'll t- deal with some claims that it might later. I'm going to come back to that. Um, by the way, one of the things to remember when we read the pages of the Bible is that it doesn't claim to be a science textbook. Okay? It doesn't claim to even be a history textbook. It claims to be a theological book. That doesn't mean that it's inaccurate on the other as it actually represents what was intended. But... That means that things were represented from their perspective. So when uh, the Bible writes about the sun rising and falling, does that mean that God got it wrong? No, it's the human author writing from his perspective, the same way that we use the word sunrise and sunset. So if you are talking about sunrise and sunset and you want to claim that the Bible is inaccurate because it reveals things that seem to contradict science, but you actually talk about sunrise and sunset, we need to reject the rest of your claims on life and truth as well. 
Because the sun, we all know that the sun rise, doesn't rise and the sun doesn't set. We just use that from our perspective in our language and our understanding of things. So, um, The alleged contradictions and errors can be dismissed normally by consideration of context, understanding the original language, and the way that the writers give us different perspectives. We're going to come back to this on why we have four different versions of the Gospels in a few minutes. Okay? There are some errors or some missing portions or some things that are not consistent across manuscripts. It is inc- the Bible is incredibly consistent across 24,000 manuscripts. But just as typos occur, typos occurred, except they were handwritten. Okay? Almost all of them can be easily seen to be just simple errors because you have 10 different copies and one of them threw an S in where an S was not appropriate. Okay. Almost all of them can be seen that way. Um, there are very, very few disputed portions of the Bible that it is not incredibly clear from multiple manuscripts what was originally intended, and there are no significant doctrines that hang upon those. Um, if you want to go more in more detail on this, um, i give you an ex- example in the next section. Um, and I'll come back to it in just a minute um, on how to look at those discrepancies and what they point to and where are they. Okay, There's no disagreements across the pages of Scripture despite different authors over 40 authors, 1,500 years. There's no change in the way the character of God is depicted. People want to talk about the New Testament being a God of grace and the Old Testament being a God of justice. You're not really paying, you've heard that, you're not really paying attention to the detail. Like think Ananias and Sapphira and then come back and tell me God's only grace in the New Testament. Okay? Um, It it just doesn't work that way. Read through the pages of the Israelite history and the number of times that God puts up with their rebellion. Like read the Bible in a year and then you'll come back and say, man, God is so gracious in the Old Testament Um, because they're as stubborn as I am. Okay? The Bible all points to Christ through a rich array of symbols, types, etc. in Jesus. It has one grand unifying theme and person in Christ. All right, for further study, and instead of packing your further study at the back end today, I tried to give you some suggested resources in each section that goes back to the topic address. So as we're talking about here, the inerrancy and evidence that the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative, uh, J.I. Packer's got a book called Fundamentalism. It's from the 50s, um, and it's good. He walks through a case for inerrancy. Even older than that uh, is Warfield's The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible is a classic articulation of those types of things. I think both of those are good and valuable. Uh, Josh McDowell, at a more popular level, writes evidence that demands a verdict, and the new evidence that demands a verdict, he looks at some of the manuscript evidence, some other stuff in that. Um, raise your hand if you've read some of McDowell's stuff before any of his stuff. He's written like 150 books. That's amazing. Um, they all seem to run together at some point. But anyway. All right. McDowell's stuff is good. Um, all right. Why do we believe that what's in the Bible is all that should be in the Bible? Okay. Um, this one's a little harder from a biblical standpoint. But the the first thing that I'm looking at here is the question of why do we believe that what we call the New Testament should be included in the Bible? Why should we not just have an Old Testament? Give me a biblical best you can thought process on that. 
It teaches us about Jesus. And that is important, valuable, necessary unto salvation. But it doesn't, not, it's not exactly what I'm looking for. Biblical passages that tell us that the New Testament should be biblical just like the Old Testament. Well, definitely in Revelation, if you change one bit of this thing. Okay. You know, the, the, yep. the, the Revelation warning about adding to or taking away the word, which would be one of the ways to look at the, the canon. I'm going to use that word. and The canon means the ruling stick or measurement, all 66 books of the Bible. That, that should be closed. That's one way to look at that. By, by, no, 100 A.D., it was the accepted. Mm-hmm. It was early accepted, but that's not a biblical claim. That's a historical. You, you guys are thinking. I heard second. Um, second Peter, um, Peter claims Paul's words yep. to be on par with Scripture. That's where I'm going. Second Peter, in both cases, is where I was going to go. I had two passages in mind. One, the concept that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Again, This is the we did not follow cleverly devised myths. This is Peter. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord, but were eyewitnesses. We were received honor and glory, my beloved son. We ourselves heard this voice. We to the prophetic word more fully confirmed, which you would do well to pay attention. So I think even in Second Peter chapter one is a claim for the authority of the New Testament coming alongside Scripture. But the big one I was looking for and fishing there is when Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, talks about the counting the patience of the Lord of salvation as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks to them of these matters. Okay, Then he goes on to say there are some things in which are hard to understand, the ignorant, unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. If he had left that word other out, then there would not be claim from Peter that Paul's words were scripture. But when he says other there, as they do the other scriptures, he is including Paul's writings as scripture. And for someone that grew up in the Jewish tradition to do this, to add to the Bible here is a very significant change in his theology from what he grew up as a good little Jewish boy. He has now said the New Testament writings of Paul are on par with the law and the prophets. They're on par with the writings. All that he knew is scripture, he's now added and said the other scriptures here with Paul. A little word, important meaning for the New Testament claims that it also is Scripture on par with Genesis 1, Exodus, the giving of the law, Hero Lord Israel, Deuteronomy 6, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. Okay. Those are the passages I was thinking of on a biblical reason why we believe that what's in the Bible should be in the Bible. Okay. Now, little background on this, some bigger academic concepts. The 66 books of the Bible are known as the canon of Holy Scripture, not a canon that like little boys love to shoot, okay? Um, C-A-N-O-N. It comes from the Greek word meaning rule or standard, and it's the word Christians use to describe the Bible, the final rule and authority for our faith. Early Christians did not decide what to put there. They already have 
affirmed that the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament was the word. They just faced the question of which books to add as part of what we would call the New Testament here. Okay? The books that were recognized were written by either the apostles, the eyewitnesses. They were widely used in the church. So early Christians didn't develop it like you would solicit manuscripts. This is barring from somebody else's terminology, like you would solicit manuscripts for a publisher. Instead, it was recognizing the best, most credible stuff that was happening. It's remarkable how early they reached agreement. The first written list that has all 27 is Athanasius' Easter letter written in 367 AD, 300 almost years later, which is fairly quick, but there's portions that are recognized much, much earlier, and there's some debated stuff beyond that. Okay, that we're getting fairly technical on this. I'm going to give you a little bit of a recommendation in a minute. But here's four, some say four, some say that there was five requirements that Protestant evangelicals used to explain which books have been included in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay, the New Testament in particular, uh, because the Old Testament's not really in question. Um, apostolic origin. Does it seem to be based on the preaching teaching of the first generation apostles, their close companions? Was it universally or nearly universally acknowledged by the major Christian communities in the ancient world? Right. Was it useful for liturgy or the standards of worship? Was it used in worship? Was it read publicly when the Christian communities gathered together for their weekly services? Does its message ring consistent theologically? complementary to other accepted Christian writings. And then the, the fifth one that's sometimes added is it, is it dynamic? Does it change people? I'm a, I'm a little weary on that one because I've seen some other books that seem to change people. I understand that some use this not in a subjective, touchy-feely only way. Um, so some include that as a fifth standard. Others only basically take the first four. The first four may be slightly worded differently, but you'll almost always find those um, in people in the canon. Yes, they are ands. Yep, they are not or. Good, good note. Um, the, the big factor is apostolic authority never detached from the authority of Christ and the message of Christ. But a biblical scholar B.B. Warfield said the canon of the New Testament was completed when John wrote Revelation somewhere around AD 100. We must not mistake the historical evidences of the slow circulation of these books as evidence of slowness of canonization of the books by the authority of the church of it, or the, itself. Okay? So basically, because it took longer to recognize it and to universally agree on it, doesn't mean that people weren't in general agreement on it earlier. Okay? The Old Testament canon, um, by and large, like was recognized pretty early. That, that doesn't seem to be in debate. The New Testament is where a lot of it is and some other miscellaneous books I'm going to come to in a minute. Christ refers to the Old Testament books as Scripture. The Council of Jamnion, 80, 90, officially recognized 39 Old Testament books. So um, Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian in 95, indicated that 39 books were recognized as authoritative. So less than a century from Christ. This is, this is early on the canon being definitively closed for the Old Testament. Okay? The New Testament, uh, the, there's more debate. It took a little bit longer to officially come to an agreement on it. The apostles claimed authority for their writings. The apostles' writings were equated, as we saw a minute ago, with Old Testament scriptures. The, the Council of Athanasius in 367 and Carthage in 397 recognized them as inspired today. The, the real discussion every now and then, like even the reformers had some different books that they were like 
a little weary of. It's like, hey, what's up with James and what's up with Esther? Like, man, I, as I said on Sunday, like my, one of my favorite books in the Bible is Esther because of the way it shouts God's name without saying his name. Um, I, I love it. Um, but there's some discussion amongst Shirley, or the, the church reformers in the 15, 16, 1700s on that type of stuff. But the, most of the debate is in what we would refer to or what others would refer to as the Apocrypha. Um, it's not scriptural. There are 15 books written in the 400-year period between Malachi and Matthew. Records some of the history of that time period, various other religious stories and teachings. The Catholic Bible normally regards these books as scripture. The Apocrypha includes some specific Catholic doctrines such as purgatory, prayer for the dead. Um, the Catholic Church recognized these books as scripture in 1546. Um, 29 years after Martin Luther criticized their doctrines as unbiblical. The supporting works were then decided to be authoritative. It only took 1,500 years. Okay, so 1,500 years on one case, 300 on the other in rebuttal of Martin Luther, not in rebuttal. Okay. But at the time Jesus was, and he didn't add any credibility right. to that. Yep, Jesus is not adding credibility to him. I mean, there's... All sorts of stuff here. The Jews never accepted the Apocrypha of Scripture. The Apocrypha never claims to be inspired. Okay? Maccabees 9.27, according to one, denies that an inspiration. It was never quoted as authoritative in Scripture, but Hebrews 11 does allude to historical events found in 2 Maccabees. Okay? Jesus implied that the close of the Old Testament historical Scriptures was the death, was the death of Zechariah. So that would be including books written after Malachi and before the other New Testament stuff. Other disputed books are also not considered scripture. There were other books that some people claimed to be scripture. Some of them written the intertestamental period called the pseudepigrapha or the false writings. Others were written after the apostolic age, the New Testament pseudepigrapha. Okay? You, if you're fascinated by all this, go deeper. Then we're going to go in here tonight. Your recommendation to study Michael Kruger's book, The Question of Canon, Challenging the Status Quo in the New Testament debate. He's not challenging the status quo I've presented here. He's challenging a much more moderate to liberal status quo that there's all sorts of Bibles and the, the, the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Thomas and all of these other things out there. Um, so you want to go deep, go deep with Kruger. I have gone deep here before, but it's been a long time since I went deep here. So um, I rely on others on this one. All right, why do we believe that what's in the Bible is an accurate representation of what was originally written? So if we have the right books, and only the right books, how do we know that John 3.16 should actually be translated for God so loved the world that he gave his only son instead of for God so loved portions of the world that he gave his only daughter? Okay, how do we know? Well, one, you can find like, the, the word behind son there, what does that mean in the Greek? How, what does that mean? Now, I'm not necessarily saying translation here. What I'm trying to do is say, how do you know that what you're translating from the Greek is actually the correct copy? How do you know that the word, not that we're translating from Greek to English good, but that the copy, the Greek copy is actually what the Greek copy was supposed to say here? How do we know that what we're translating from is what was originally said? This is the task of a different group of scholars, typically. And they're like super nerdy experts, okay? 
and I can call them nerdy, and you know I classify as a nerd, so I can call them a nerd. Um, like that, they're they're specialists. Um, they're special nerds. Okay, um, and some people love this stuff. I do find it fascinating, but I get really like, I get really bewildered. I'm like, wow, this is deep. Like and all these numbers and stuff. Okay, I'm going to give you stuff. Uh, I think this is where the the Christian apologetic and research ministry CARM. Their stuff is good. I point you to this. There's hundreds of pages of stuff from them uh, on this link. Uh, the Bible is 98%, according to them, textually pure. Through all of the copying of the biblical manuscripts in the entire Bible, only 2% has questions about it. Nothing in all the ancient writings of the entire world approaches the accuracy of the biblical text. The 2% that is in question does not affect doctrine. It are largely, they're called variants. And they consist mainly of variations of wording and spelling. So are we going to spell a name with a silent E on the end or not on the end? And versions of that, obviously, in the Greek and the Aramaic and the Hebrew, as opposed to the English on that. Okay? Um, the New Testament has over 5,000 supporting Greek manuscripts existing today with another 20,000 manuscripts in other languages. That's not whole copies. Okay? That's like segments and pieces. Um, some of the manuscript evidence dates to within a hundred years of the original writing. There's less than a 2% variation in the New Testament manuscripts. Some of the most supporting manuscripts are Ryland's. He wrote something around 180, 130. It's the oldest existing fragment of the Gospel of John. It's from 130, um, give or take just a couple of decades later. And there's other ones out there that contain major portions of the New Testament. With the, the Codus Vaticanus in AD 325 to 350 contains nearly all of the Bible. The Codus Sinaiticus in 350 contains almost all the New Testament, over half of the Old Testament. This is just the stuff we found that's been preserved by the workings of God in nature that has defied the elements um, for a long, long, long time. You want to look at further study, go to CARM, follow the links there. They're Lots and lots of good stats and cool stuff there, but I just can't memorize it all, and you probably will not be able to either, but there's lots of stuff there. Okay. So how? How do we engage? Biblically, being ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you, First Peter three fifteen. I would say, how should we engage with people that are skeptical about all our parts of the Bible? I think you actually should still point them to the Bible. Hebrews 4.12 says, says that the word of God is... Uh, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to penetrate to jo- jo- dividing the jo- joints and marrow, penetrating the thoughts and tents of the heart. All right, before it, all sc- people are open and laid bare. It has all of that in it. Scripture makes claims that it does work. Hebrews fifty-five, or not Hebrews, Isaiah fifty-five, ten and eleven talks about God's word not returning void, but accomplishing the purpose for which it sent itself which it was sent. So if the Bible claims that it works, then we ought to count upon it to work. Okay? And regarding the different versions, people being skeptical of different versions of the gospel events in the, in the four gospels, it's helpful to remember that they present them from different perspectives. It's helpful to remember that sometimes the gospels reorder events and sayings. It's helpful to remember their theological focus and why they included what they included. But... Like, and those are valuable ways to sort through the harmony of the Gospels um, there. When people are skeptical about parts of the Bible, yes, we need to answer tough questions. But as other pastors have said, when somebody's skeptical about the Bible, I really just want them to read the Bible. 
Like, let's read the Bible together. Let's read through the Gospel of John together, and you then tell me what you got a problem with in here. Um, I, I believe it's Spurgeon that's first recorded as saying it this way. If you have a, 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 a lion in a cage, and somebody's coming by, a little boy's coming by, and he's poking at the lion, um, and he's fighting the lion, and you're like, man, just leave the lion alone. Just leave the lion alone. Just leave the lion alone. With a little boy, we'd probably just keep doing that. But eventually, dude starts hurting the lion. If it's a grown man, he just starts hurting the lion. He's your treasured lion. You don't, like, go over there and fight the guy yourself to leave your lion alone. You just let the lion out of the cage and let it defend itself. And the lion devours the one that would seek to come after it. So also, I believe in the power of the word that the best way to defend the Bible is let the Bible out of its cage to defend itself. That the best apologetic, the best way to engage with people that are skeptical about the Bible is to have them read it. Because I believe that God's word, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it accomplishes its purposes, and that it is, a, it is better at defending itself than I am at defending a lion. So that was my, where I would go ultimately skeptical. Let's read it together and you tell me what you don't know that you believe and why. Thoughts or questions from tonight? It was rapid fire through some of this stuff. Um, Next week, we're going to look at the resurrection. We should be able to slow down a little bit on the resurrection. Go deeper. Um, there's a there's further study the Bible. Okay, I had fun writing that one. Um, but also, I, I think Geisler and Howell's book, The Big Book of Bible Difficulties, is probably a valuable resource for questions that people commonly have about supposed contradictions or problems with the Bible. We've got a homework assignment, just a recap, and then why the resurrection changes everything article for next week. And we'll talk about evidence for and why the resurrection is critical next week. Questions going once. Done. God, thank you for the way that the word does its work on us. Would we open up our own lives to the power of your word, not guarding ourselves from you, but opening ourselves to you and your word, that your word might accomplish its work in us, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work that honors you that you've called us to. God, would you give us the ability to read scripture with non-believers and see you work in them that they might not just trust in the authority of scripture, but they might trust in Christ as Savior. It's your name we pray. Amen.